And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye, Lay your beasts, and go, get you unto the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come unto me, and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, this do ye, take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones, and for your wives, and bring you, and bring your father, and come. Also regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the children of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh, and gave them provision for the way. To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. And to his father he sent after this manner ten asses laden with the good things of Egypt, and ten she-asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father by the way. So he sent his brethren away, and they departed. And he said unto them, See that ye fall not out by the way. They went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob, their father, and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. They told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, The spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph my son is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will surely also bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. And these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak and Falu and Hezron and Carmi. And the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. And the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the sons of Judah, Ur, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron, and Hamul. And the sons of Issachar, Tola, and Fuva, and Job, and Shimron. And the sons of Zebulon, Sered, and Elon, and Jaliel. These be the sons of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, and Padanaram, with his daughter Dinah. All the souls of his sons and his daughters were thirty and three. And the sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Haggai, Shunai, and Esbon, Eri, and Erodi, and Ereli. And the sons of Asher, Jimna, and Ishua, and Isui. 
and Bariah and Sirah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bare unto Jacob, even sixteen souls. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And unto Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And the sons of Benjamin were Bela and Beker, and Ashbel, Gira and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Muppam and Huppam and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, which were born to Jacob. All the souls were fourteen. And the sons of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel and Gunai and Jezer and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, which Laban gave unto Rachel, his daughter. And she bare these unto Jacob. All the souls were seven. Were seven. All the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins, besides Jacob's sons' wives, all the souls were threescore and six. And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. And Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me, and the men are shepherds, for their trade hath been to feed cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come to pass, when Pharaoh shall call you, and shall say, What is your occupation? That ye shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text that I call our attention to specifically tonight is verse 28. But understand as we reread that text that in a sense this whole section that we have just read is the text tonight and we're interpreting that text in light of the details given in this verse. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Genesis 46, verse 28, once again seems like a rather minor detail in a bigger story. And in some ways it is a minor detail. The bigger story is the story that explains how the tribe of Israel ended up in Egypt in preparation for the Exodus. It is the story also of how the patriarch Jacob was reunited with his son Joseph, whom he thought dead. And it is a story of God working all things together for the good of His people, even the sins of Judah and his brother, to save much people alive. And yet, having carefully studied the life of Judah and having come to this part of the series, 
all of a sudden this minor detail starts to stand out in a way that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise. Yes, this is really the story of Jacob coming to Egypt with his family and being reconciled with Joseph. And yet, it's worth noting that it was Judah who led the way. That's the beginning of the text. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And in a striking way, once you have unraveled the story of Judah, that little detail ends up being a kind of culmination of everything that Judah has become. It's a detail, first of all, that marks the totality of Judah's repentance. Remember that it was Judah's scheming that got Joseph sold into Egypt as a slave and caused so much grief to his father in the first place. But it is now Judah who repairs the damage that he created by directing Jacob's face to be reunited with his long-lost son. His repentance is total, as seen from the complete change of direction in his life. This is a detail also that indicates the role that Judah now plays in the family of Jacob. That Jacob sent Judah before him into Goshen, is not just a matter of convenience or of random selection. It indicates rather that Jacob has begun to recognize what he's later on going to put into words on his deathbed. In Genesis 49, verse 10, he says, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet." Judah is sent before Jacob and sent before the whole covenant family into Egypt because Judah is functioning as the firstborn. Of, Judah, of Jacob's tribe, which is a pretty significant thing. And yet it is fitting that this story comes to us as a minor detail, for the kind of leadership that Judah exercises is not the kind of leadership that insists on being recognized. It is rather the sort of leadership that reflects the mind of Christ, who made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And it is thus, with the Spirit of Christ upon him, that Judah leads the way. And that's the theme tonight. Judah leads the way. First, the historical fact that is being recorded in this story, he leads the way to the land of Goshen. Secondly, that he also in this act, leads the way to a restored and reunited family, particularly in the relationship between Jacob and Joseph. And then also, he leads the way to hope, to Israel's hope, even as they take up residence in a strange land for a time. Judah leads the way to the land of Goshen, to a restored family, and to Israel's hope. Now, this is one of those stories in the Bible where you almost wish you could be a fly on the wall, watching silently as the 11 sons of Jacob return to the tents of their father for the second time. If Jacob happened to see his sons returning, you can imagine 
his confusion. Their caravan seems to be bigger, first of all, than when they left. And they're all wearing different clothes, bright and colorful clothes, like the clothes of lords from Egypt. But then the eleven brothers rush into Jacob's tent, and their whole spirit is brighter than it was before. Before, remember, there was tension, and there was disquiet in the house and the family of Jacob. There was always this cloud of guilt and suspicion that was hanging over them whenever they interacted. But now we can imagine the sons of Jacob practically tripping over themselves to get into the tent of their father and to tell him the news of what had just happened. Chapter 45, verse 26. And they told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive! And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. But if they thought that their words would cheer Joseph, uh, Jacob up, they were at least at first mistaken. We read that Jacob's heart fainted and he believed them not, and we can understand why his heart fainted and why he didn't believe them. This was a lot to take in for an old man who had gotten used to his grief and who had gotten used to, really, his bitterness of spirit. And, you know, the Bible gives us this in brief snapshots, but we have to understand that there is more going on than what they said merely in verse 26. In order to tell Jacob the news that Joseph is alive and is a ruler in Egypt, they also had to make a confession, which means that the truth had to come out truth that maybe Jacob had been suspicious of for many years, but had never had confirmed out of the mouths of his sons. They had to tell him what they had done all those years before, how they had ignored their brother Joseph's pleading and sold him into Egypt, and how they had lied to their father and allowed him to think that his favorite son Joseph had been torn in pieces by a wild animal. And all of this must have seemed too good to be true to Jacob, that Joseph was not only alive yet, but was a prince, a ruler in Egypt, which again was a world power in that day. So we can imagine Jacob freezing up, his face falling, as he hears all these strange tales from his sons, sons who, remember, he did not really trust. And yet the brothers were not so easily put out They told their father all the words of Joseph, everything that he had said to them in the land of Egypt, which must have included a whole recounting of all of the things that had happened on that second trip. They must have brought forth Simeon, who had been held in hostage in Egypt for a long time. And then Benjamin, who confirmed that, yes, it was my brother Joseph who we talked to. And then they led their old father outside to see the wagons that had been commissioned by Pharaoh, which probably had the hieroglyphs or the insignia of Egypt written on the side. So they had evidence that Jacob could not refute. And when he saw that, his spirit revived, the Bible tells us. And he believed them. He believed them. Can you imagine what a moment that must have been for the brothers who have been watching 
their father Jacob slowly deteriorate and waste away for all of these years in his sadness. For years they feared that his gray head was going to go down to the grave in sorrow and that it was going to be all because of their fault, their sin. But now they see some joy in that old face once more. And what's more, the whole story is out. For the first time, the whole story is out. Not just Joseph, have they been reconciled to, but now Jacob knows as well. And he believes them. And the cloud of guilt and suspicion is lifting. They've regained something of their father's confidence that they had lost. What an amazing moment that must have been. So Jacob turns his face southward and plans to move to the land of Egypt. Verse 28 of chapter 45. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, it might be difficult for us to appreciate what a big move this was for Jacob and for his family to go to Egypt, for starters. Jacob was a very old man at this point. He was 130 years old by the time he was presented in the court of Pharaoh, which is mentioned in Genesis 47, verse 9. And his family was not a small family, but had grown into a tribe. It was the beginning of what would eventually become the nation of Israel. Seventy souls who belonged to the immediate family of Jacob, whose names are mentioned in verses 8 through 27 of chapter 46. And those 70 souls do not include all of the servants and all of the cattle that also belonged to Jacob's household. And Egypt was many miles away from Canaan, especially if you're going by wagon. So this is a big move. In addition to that, there is a well-known history that Jacob would have been familiar with and that all of his sons would have been familiar with of what happens when one of the patriarchs goes down to Egypt during a time of famine. And it was a history that stood as a warning. Remember Abraham? Coming into the land of Canaan, and then there's a famine. And what does he do? He flees south. He goes to the land of Egypt. And what happens there? Well, he almost loses his wife, Sarai, to the harems of Pharaoh and jeopardizes the covenant promise. And his nephew Lot's heart is corrupted by the riches that they gained there. So that when they finally do come back to Canaan, he sets his tent toward uh, Sodom. So what gives Jacob the right to move his growing family down to Egypt, even if there is a famine? Shouldn't Jacob trust in God and stay in Canaan, which is what Abraham should have done, and which Isaac was once told to do by God? Well, when you understand that background, it explains why the first thing Jacob does in his journey, is to stop at Beersheba, according to chapter 46, verse 1. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. Beersheba was on the southern border of the land of Canaan. 
You see, Jacob was a man of faith, and he would never go past that point, that boundary of Beersheba, unless he was allowed to. And he would not base that decision based on his feelings, even if his heart is crying out to go see his son Joseph. He's a man of faith. So he offers sacrifice to God. And in effect, what he's doing is he's asking permission. Is this acceptable? May I leave Canaan, the land of promise, and go down into Egypt, where so much trouble was experienced before? Well, God appeared to Jacob and gave his blessing. Verse 2, And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. Now two things ought to catch our attention at this point. The first is that though God allows Jacob to go down into Egypt with his family, he does so because he has a covenantal purpose in view. God is going to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham to make of his family like the stars of heaven, and he's going to do that in Egypt. There, God says, I will make of thee a great nation. The second thing that ought to catch our attention is that God's goal for Jacob and his family is never for them to stay in Egypt. This is a temporary sojourn with a specific purpose. Which makes it very important that God says, I will go down with you and I will bring you up again. And that's because Egypt, though it may function as a place of temporary relief from a famine, still, nevertheless, in Scripture, stands for the house of bondage. It stands for the world and for sin. In Canaan, even if it is temporarily under famine, still represents the land of promise and the place where God dwells. Now at this point, I can't help but think of the words of Hosea 11 verse 1, which is where God says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Now that's interesting. At the time when the prophet Hosea pronounced that word, it would have been understood as a reference to God's leading of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. But according to Matthew 2 verse 15, that word from Hosea 11 verse 1 is also a prophecy that was fulfilled when Joseph and Mary took the child of Jesus down into Egypt and then God called him back out of Egypt into the land of Nazareth. But what does that have to do with this story? What does that have to do with the family of Jacob going down into Goshen? Well, this is what it has to do with this story. Before God can call his son out of Egypt, his son must first be in Egypt. And that's what's going on here in Genesis 46. The family of Jacob, the tribe of Israel, is being 
driven down into Egypt by circumstances, which means really by God Himself. The family of Jacob is going down into Egypt on account of the sin that Judah and, the, and his brothers committed of selling Joseph into slavery. The family of Israel is being driven down into Egypt on account of this famine in the land of Canaan, threatening to destroy the house of Jacob. God is working through all of these things providentially to accomplish the good of His people, to save much people alive. But nevertheless, what's going on here? God's people, the covenant nation, are being driven into what Deuteronomy 4 verse 20 calls the iron furnace and what God calls the house of bondage. They're being driven out of the land of promise and into the land of the darkness of this world, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. Something that's going to set the stage for the greatest story of redemption that is ever told in the Old Testament, the story of the ten plagues, the story of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh, the exodus. But at this point, not knowing what's going to happen, just looking at this story, you almost scratch your head and you wonder, what is God doing here? Why is He sending His people straight into the jaws of the enemy? But I believe it's this big picture context that we have to understand in order to understand what's going on in the text. Everything that I just said, God's nation being sent down into Egypt, into the iron furnace, into the house of bondage, helps us understand what's going on in verse 28, our text. Jacob sends Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. The whole family of Jacob is going down into Egypt, and it's Judah who leads the way. Now, if Judah was only Judah, that would not be worth paying any attention to. But Judah isn't only Judah. Judah is the father of Perez, who was the ancestor of David, whose son is Jesus Christ. And Judah is functioning in the role of the representative of the house and family of Jacob. He is going before the people of God in a representative role in order to make all of the preparations in order to ensure that the family of Jacob is set up in the right place, in order to ensure that they have a place in Goshen, where they will be separate from the Egyptians somewhat, where they will be protected from the charms of the world. That's significant. I've been hesitant in this series to say that Judah is acting as a type of Christ in any sort of strict way. But the idea here very much is that Christ is in Judah. Christ is here in the generations of Judah and the Spirit of Christ is in Judah in this act of leadership. And it foreshadows the mind and the Spirit of the Christ who will be coming. God calls His Son out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, out of the darkness of this world, but first, His Son must go down into that darkness. 
He must leave the glories and joys of heaven behind in order to serve as the representative head of his people. He must go before them to prepare for them a refuge, to protect them, to provide for them. God says to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for I will go down with you. And the way God fulfills that promise is by sending Judah before to direct his face to Goshen. Now that's a lot of history, a lot of background to understand what's going on in this, what seems like a very minor text. But it speaks to real issues that we deal with as believers and as Christians. We may wonder why God ever sends us down into Egypt, as it were. Why does God leave us in this world with all of its vanity and all of its sin when we are not to be of the world, but we are in the world? Why does God allow some of His people sometimes to wander as backsliders in the darkness of unbelief? Why does He lead us sometimes into places of temptation? He never tempts us, but sometimes in His sovereign way of dealing with our lives, He places us in situations where we will be tempted. Why does He do that? Why does He allow there to be sin? Why does He he allow there to be the darkness of this world and then we have to, to live there in Egypt? And on the one hand, we must understand that God has a reason for all of this. God has a reason for the existence of Egypt. And God has a reason for bringing His people down into the iron furnace, down into the darkness. And the reason is because that's the only way to show us the wonders of redemption. We would never know the Lamb who takes away the sin of this world if there was not first a Passover. And there will be no Passover if there is not first a sojourn in the land of Egypt and in the house of bondage. God has to drive His Son down into Egypt if He's ever going to call Him out. God has to put us into this sinful world, into its vanity and darkness if we are ever going to appreciate the light that is the Son of God and the glories of redemption. But then also we must always understand that God is with us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He goes before us. He prepares our way. He stands as our representative. He functions as a much better than Judah in that respect. Because he is very much with us. All the time, spiritually. And He works to unite and to build us up and to restore us. And that brings us to the second point. So if we've been dealing with a story from a 30,000 foot viewpoint, now we're going to narrow it in a little bit more and and look more specifically at, at what's going on here. Judah goes before Israel into Egypt. But let's note what the heart 
of Judah's mission really was. And it wasn't just to go on ahead and to act as a scout. It's not like Judah had to go and blaze a new trail for them to follow because they all knew the way already. This was the third trip to Egypt within months for all of the brothers except for Simeon and Benjamin. No, Jacob sent Judah ahead to prepare the way, but also he sent him ahead specifically, the text says, unto Joseph. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph. And again, when you understand the whole story of Judah, it's an amazing statement. Remember the dynamics and the relationship between Judah and Joseph. Judah is the one who was most responsible for the fact that Joseph has been absent from his father's house for the last 20 years or more. Judah is the one who had this idea to sell Joseph into slavery and to make some money. Judah is the reason Jacob has been separated for all these years from the son whom he so deeply loved and cherished. It was Judah's envy. It was Judah's malice. His hatred. And now, Judah is sent before Jacob unto Joseph. Judah now will function as the agent who reunites the grieving father with a long-lost son. Again, Judah's actions here are not the main event in this story. The main event is when Joseph makes his chariots ready and he rides north to Goshen to meet his father, the father whom he last saw as a 17-year-old boy. What a wonderful moment that is. You can imagine what's going on in the mind of Jacob. I, I thought you were dead. For years I've been mulling over this torn coat of many colors that was all bloody. And I said, surely he is torn in pieces, but but now I see your face. You're alive. What a moment. Jacob is now happy to leave this life, he says. Verse 30, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. But in a way, the fact that Judah's role is a background role makes it all the more powerful for that reason. Remember, Judah's sin had been the sin of envy. Judah wanted his father to love him the way that he so obviously loved Joseph. Judah, with his other brothers, wanted their father Jacob, to weep on their necks when they came home from a long journey, the way that Jacob was now weeping on the neck of Joseph. Judah had wanted Jacob to say to him, now I can die in peace because I have seen your face and I take such joy in you, my son. Judah had wanted the love of his father, which had been denied to him. And in many ways, that denial had not been Judah's fault. It was the outworking of Jacob's sin. Jacob's sin of multiplying wives. Jacob's sin of showing favoritism. And yet, this had produced envy in Judah. Envy. Hatred. 
that gave birth to murder. But now look at Judah. Now look at him. Now he's happy to stand, as it were, in the shadows and to facilitate this glorious reunion between Jacob and Joseph. Now Judah, without any envy at all, is happy to allow his father to lavish Joseph with all of this love and all of this joy. He's happy to be the servant in the background who simply facilitates it, simply makes it happen. Isn't that amazing? Judah is a completely different man. And every part of his sinful descent into hatred and envy and unbelief has completely been turned around. Now, that didn't happen overnight. But it did happen day by day, year by year. And now Judah has reached this point in his sanctification that he really ends up embodying the true spirit of godly leadership. Rather than to use his evident skills of leadership to kill and to destroy and to foster alienation and hatred, he uses it to build, to repair, to reunite and to restore and to foster love in his family, even if he is not the immediate object of that love. And he's happy to do all of this without receiving anything in return, without hardly even being noticed. That's why I say, beloved, that this is the mind of Christ. Now I know Jesus did not come into this world simply to create external peace. He did not come into this world as a doormat to allow others to trample all over him so that there may be peace, peace, when really there is no peace. No, Jesus himself said, think not that I'm come to send peace in the world. I came not to send peace, but a sword to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against his mother. The peace and joy and unity that Jesus fosters is never superficial or merely outward. It's not just a culture of being nice that he creates and fosters in the church. And niceness isn't necessarily reflective of the mind of Christ. But Jesus is not ultimately a man of war either. He wages war, but he wages war in the service of peace and unity among his people whom he loves. And that is his great work. The great work of Christ is to reunite those who otherwise would stand in alienation from one another. The great work of Christ is to break down the middle wall of partition that separates the Jew from the Gentile. The great work of Christ is to set a slave with his master under the same preaching and the same call to repentance and faith. And he speaks the truth in love in order to unite the members of his body together. In love. And though the Father does honor him for all of this, and the church praises him for this, he himself does it with the heart and spirit of a servant. Even now in his exaltation, he ever liveth to make intercession for his people. Even now in all power is given unto him in heaven and earth, he uses it to make all things work together for the good of his people. That is the mind of Christ, beloved. And that was the mind of Judah, a servant. Is that your mind?
We've been hearing a lot in our churches about the doctrine of repentance lately. What does it mean to be repentant? How do you know if someone is truly repentant or just putting on a hypocritical show? What proof is there that someone has truly turned from idols to serve the living God? Turned from the sinful patterns of life to the pattern of righteousness? And there are all kinds of tests that we might invent or set forward as proof. If you agree to abide by these specific criteria, then we know you are truly repentant. If you stop doing this activity or that activity, then we know you are converted. And to an extent, yes, that's true. But this is what the Bible teaches emphatically as the mark of a repentant person. That they have the mind of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this is what that mind is. That nothing will be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind each will esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The mind of Christ is the mind of a servant who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. He's speaking to the church there. Speaking to you. Look at the people around you, the people who are marked out as members of the church, as members of the household of faith of Israel. Love them. Love their children. Love them with the absence of envy, the absence of spite, the absence of bitterness and fear. Love them the way that Judah here loves his father Jacob leading him even into the arms of his favorite son, Joseph. Love them in a way that is self-effacing. Love them in a way that gives more than it receives. That is the mind of Christ. A mind which is only possible when you are living by faith. And when your hope is in God. And that brings us to the final point tonight. Hope may not seem to be an important concept in this particular story or in this particular text. The word hope is never mentioned, and the idea of hope maybe even seems out of place. When you just look at this story in Genesis 45 and 46, it seems like a story of present salvation. It seems like a story of hopes being realized, and to an extent, it is. Father and Son reunited Deliverance from the famine. But remember that big picture that we were talking about earlier. For though there is temporary relief from the famine by going down into Egypt, what this means is that Israel is going to be caught in the house of bondage and that they are leaving Canaan, which is the land that flows with milk and honey. And when you look at it in that point of view, 
You, you ask, what? That seems wrong. But Judah had hope, and this is why his hope is important. And Jacob had hope, and Joseph had hope, and all of their sons had hope. And their hope is evident from the fact that they chose to live in the land of Goshen. And they chose to continue dwelling in the land of Goshen as pilgrims and strangers. And they chose to remain as shepherds in a place where shepherds were held as an abomination by the Egyptians. Going down into Egypt, they could have mingled with the people of the land. They could have become Egyptians. They could have enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season. It was all right there. And if they had chosen that way, they never would have become slaves. And Egypt would not have been the house of bondage to them, nor the iron furnace to them. And they never would have experienced the trouble that was coming. But Judah and Jacob and Joseph and the sons had hope. And their hope was for something better than Egypt. And it was for something better than even Canaan had to offer. Their hope was in God. In God, who said, I will be with you in the land of Egypt, and I will there make of you a great nation. And when God said, I will there make of you a great nation, from a certain point of view, you could say, yeah, he's talking about those two million or so souls who would end up being led out of Egypt in the Exodus. But he's not only talking about that. He's talking about the whole company of the elect. He's talking about a multitude of people who are truly beyond numbering, as many as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And yet, a multitude of people, each one of whom is known and loved by Jehovah God, who sends Christ for their redemption and gives them hope for the future. And so Judah goes before Jacob to direct his face not into the land of Egypt as such and not into the courts of Pharaoh as such, but the text says to direct his face unto Goshen. To direct his face unto a temporary refuge where they will be kept safe until the Lord remembers them and brings them out again back to where they belong, which is the land of promise. The land where Abraham and Isaac buried their dead in the hope of a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And beloved, you have that hope. And it's only when you have that hope that like Judah, you also will lead the way. Not necessarily in the same way that Judah did, and certainly not in the way that Christ does, but as Christians. You will lead the way as those who are free from the fear of the future, as those who are free from envy and bitterness and all the rage of man. You can lay it down. You can mortify that envy and hatred that led Judah to sell his brother into bonds. And you can dwell in peace with your brother as fellow heirs of life eternal. Because you have hope. You have hope. And that hope is the power of the Christian life. That's why the story is so powerful. The story of Judah. It almost feels trite to say it, but 
You know, the word of God speaks through the centuries. It speaks through the years. And it speaks right to our hearts. Right to our own circumstances, right to our own lives. Judah. He could really be any one of us. A sinner. Redeemed by grace. Made by Christ into a new creature. Living in hope for good things to come. And in that hope, leading his family to a better life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for these old stories. And we thank Thee, O Father, for how Christ is in those stories and how He makes those stories come alive so that they speak to us in our own present circumstances. We pray, O Father, that Thou wilt give us hope and strengthen our hope so that we are content to live as shepherds or to live as those who are held in abomination by the world around us. Because our home is not in this world, but our home is in heaven, in the land of promise. And give us, O Father, the mind of Christ, that we may lay down our lives for our brothers, that we may be content even to labor in the background, to labor without recognition, but to labor fiercely and powerfully for the good of our brother. We pray, O Father, that Thou would always be with us, even down in the iron furnace, in the land of Egypt, where we must sojourn for a time until the day of redemption comes. We live, O Father, by Thy care of us and by every word that comes out of Thy mouth. Let this history live in our souls and lead us, O Father, to lead one another as Christians, and as those who are members of Christ by faith and partakers of His anointing. Hear our prayer and send us away from Thy house now with Thy blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.